from the fabulous and famous Fitzpatrick's Castle Hotel in Dublin, Ireland. You're listening to the award-winning What's the Story podcast. Now, here's your hosts, Danny Murray and Graham Merrill Merrigan. Hello and welcome along to chapter 46 of What's the Story podcast, the award-winning What's the Story award podcast. Award-winning. My name is Danny Murray and his name is Graham Merrill Merrigan. Yo! How are you? Excellent. Brilliant, glad to hear it, glad to hear it. We're coming to you as always. We're the only podcast in Ireland that comes to you officially from a castle. That's how good we are and that's how <laughs> good things are. Look, when you're the king, you get a castle and that's what we that's are. That's We're in our thrones now, we... We've demanded the castle now give us thrones, so we're recording tonight from our thrones. Exactly, yeah, this thrones, is beautiful. Thrones, T-H, thrones. Thrones. Game yeah. of Thrones, I don't exactly. watch Game of Thrones. Do you not watch it? No. Unbelievable. I stopped at about uh, uh, season three. Just There was about 65 characters I had to keep an eye on. Oh man, all of them are great. I love Game of Thrones, I do. And I'd say up here in the beautiful surroundings of Fitzpatrick's castle in Cluny, I would imagine this would be like Casterly Rock. I would imagine this... It's not Winterfell. It's too nice up here during the summer to be Winterfell. I don't think it's in Dorne. I don't think it's across. It's not Mordor. The, definitely. That's the wrong one. That's, oh, that's Lord of the Rings, kid. Oh, sorry. Calm yourself down. Don't be. <laughs> Calm yourself down. <laughs> don't be doing that. Don't be doing that. The Game of Thrones heads will have an absolute freak. Former guest John Ross Kangle will come over and hit you with a nine iron. Nah, he wouldn't use a nine iron. I met you a couple of weeks ago with the uh, Darkness into Light. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good crack. Brilliant. It was wrecked doing it, man. I'll talk to you a little bit about that now in a minute. Yeah. But uh, yeah, look, if you want to pop up to the beautiful surroundings of Cluny Hill and Fitzpatrick's Hotel, you can check out fitzpatrickcastle.com. Why don't you come up, check out the dungeon, check out PJs, check out the library bar. Great people up here, great food, great drink, great banter, great surroundings. So what else Just do you great. need? What else do you need? Graham. Daniel. Yeah, sorry, I was at the Darkness and Delight. How was it? Um, Shane Fitz, me, one of my bestie's got me to do it. Didn't tell me there was any hills or anything like that. Which one? Which one did you do? Bray you did it and down the fodder. Bray B R E fodder. Yeah, um, got down, got the put, got to the bottom, bottom of Putland Hill. This train is for Bray. Bray, <laughs> I love that in the dart. <laughs> Sorry, got, got to the bottom of Putland Hill. I was yeah. like, oh my god, Shane, you're killing me. Shane had to take over and push me a bit. I to give you a little push. I got the majority away, but people were saying low to me but as I was pushing. Yeah, you, have a, you have a big boy chair now. You're no handles. I know. It's, it's the pushing. A <laughs> big boy It's like the stabilizers <laughs> are gone. It's not very hard to give you a hoosh now, no? I wanted handles. But the lads were bullying you already. But the lads in the wheelchair basketball world bullied me because uh, they don't have handles. And my good friend Barry Cook ordered the chair and didn't have any handles on it. And I said, where are my handles? He said, I'm not giving you handles. You don't mind them. My, st- you, my last handles. chair, my last chair um, had screw-on handles. Ah. And any time I was training with the national squad. they take them off? they take them off and hide them for about weeks, for a few <laughs> weeks. And I'd be like, where the bleeding hell are my handles? The lads would hide them. Dopes. We'll batter them all. Um, yeah, well, well, Pullman Hill was a... Paying the hole, man. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, it'll be ready next year. It was great, though. There's great atmosphere down there. Four in the morning, and there was thousands out. It was brilliant. Met loads of people. 120,000 nationwide took part That's in. Was it over 100 events or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Incredible, incredible. And Fair then there was uh, Perth and Sydney and Melbourne. 
There's like twelve hundred or something in Gone by Byron Bay. Or not Byron Bay, sorry, um Bondi Beach. It's where you'd be in Australia where you know all them places. <laughs> I haven't. Oh no, I have. I lived there. Were you in Australia? Yeah, I lived there, man. Jeez, that's mad. As as previous stated in chapter mm. one to forty. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't watch all the chapters. <laughs> Love it. Met um, JR that was good man. We high fived. I was too stuff. tired to really talk to him though, so sorry, JR. He's a great bloke and uh, we got a great reaction to his chapter. Yeah. And if if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and have a blast of it. It's it's an amazing story. He's yeah. a great guy. I, I got a lot of private messages about his bravery. Yeah. Um, and that was a great story. So well done, JR. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the darkness and light, fair play. And as always, look if anybody out there is, um, you know, feeling the need for support or whatever, reach out, lads. Places like Pierre the House, organisations like Suicide or Survive, your mental health, all those kind of things. Check them out. Don't be afraid to ask for help, lads. Yeah. Graham. Daniel. That was good. Would you know what time it is? What is it, Danny? It's time for a little something I like to call housekeeping. Um, yeah, look, the, 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 this week our, our chapter is focusing on a part of the world that um, we formerly had listeners and now they have disappeared. Yeah. Mysteriously. Um, this is something I've probably talked about on chapters, I'd say about 7 through 40, because yeah. uh, they turned up around chapter 7. Once upon a time, um, our statistics showed that we had listeners in North Korea. Many do we have? Two. Two. Um, but they have now disappeared and I can't find any record of them whatsoever. Yeah. Which may go in line with a lot of things in North Korea, if you know what I'm saying. We do have a couple in the South and we have a lot of South Korean fans on Facebook. So if any of the lads are listening, how are you? we got a couple of likes today of Sea Hawk. Nice one, Sea. Yeah. It's mad. Like, it's, it's incredible. Look, the whole thing about this, the, 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 this still baffles me. That, you know, we have regular listeners in little pockets of the globe. Like, we've got Autumn and Gav over on uh, the west coast of America. Yeah. We've got uh, our mate Tony, who we met at the UFC. Oh, yeah, Tony. We've got my friends Kenny Dowdle and Siobhan in yeah. in Brisbane. Yeah, you know. And uh, we probably have a couple of lads in, like, pockets of bogger areas of Kerry and that kind of thing as yeah. well. You know what I mean? So, how you, lads? Um, well done on getting high-speed internet. Congratulations. You still have to wait in the government's up the Healy Rays. R- rural broadband plan. Um yeah, up the Healy Rays and uh we just like to say thanks to Danny for saying the prayer and giving us a bit of sunshine. <laughs> seeing us thought a big man controls the weather allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Calamity stuff, man. If you don't know what we're talking about, just Google Danny Healy Ray and, and God and God. And uh bearing in mind this is an elected official for the people of Kerry in the year two thousand sixteen. Rural areas in Ireland are going to do that, though, aren't they? Like, what, a, a, a elect absolute star-craven madmen. But elect, yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> much corrupt madmen. I'm not calling the Hillary's corrupt. Oh, I was going to say, be very careful. Certainly, Michael Lowry is corrupt. Oh well, Michael Lowry has, has certainly been, it's been shown and has been given thing. the red card, but still, his local community. Come the, out in their droves. The, the people at Tipperary must be mental. Actually, I must give a shout out to Paddy Ryan of TipperaryTimes.com. Um, very nice bloke. Listens to the podcast and his uh, his website's doing absolutely great. Well, t- t- tell us, we must get Pat on to ask him about the love, the loving for Michael Healy Ray. And uh, Alan, power is a drug that suits me, Kelly. And by the time this chapter goes out, he could be the new leader of the Labour Party. Oh, Jesus. 
But uh, like Michael Lowry has done very corrupt things over the course of his political career. But you see, he's probably looked after the but, locals in that. But can I ask you? In well, you're probably just answering my question. Yeah. Why do they keep? Are they blinded by the fact that he accepted black backhanders? Blackhanders. Oh, well, <laughs> Black Is he? Are they blinded by the fact that he was involved in so much corrupt? By I, I don't know. By a national inquiry have proven him has proven that he. Oh, look, I, I I don't know. I I wouldn't dare speak for people of the Premier County. Um, all I know is that he must do something for the people if he is consistently elected with one of the highest numbers of first preference votes in the last number of elections. It's crazy. Um, Just don't get it. Was he toward toward most first preference votes? I think in, in, in the country, in this, yeah, in this yeah. election. Um, That's bizarre. Man. It, it's crazy, but look, he's obviously doing something that the people are saying. Yeah, we want him back. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Look, I I personally think after we done three chapters on politics, that we should only do politics with a crack from now on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I know if if any of the healer raises would like to come on and talk to us, lads, they're always welcome. Um, we'll organise cattle grazing outside for you so that you feel more at home or something. Um, if it's Patrick, sort of accommodating like that. So yeah. Anyway, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> that's so, just another WTS tangent. Yeah, it was. Yeah, because we're meant to be talking about North Korea. Yeah. Imagine the Healy, North Korea. Imagine the Healy rays in North Korea. Imagine them on a on a a, a, a visit, oh, a state visit to North Korea. Just walking around. The Healy rays meeting Kim Jong Un. Just kicking tires on cars. Yeah, it's not like that. West Korea. <laughs> <laughs> just Give me any cognac. Kicking tires on bleeding tractors and all going, what is she, a messy or a John Deere? What is this, huh? <laughs> we but, should uh, not do carry accents. No, that's not okay. I, I don't have accents. I've literally got Kulchi or this, <laughs> and that's all I've got. I can't do accents worth a shite. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, the North Koreans, um, our chapter this week is dedicated to the people in North Korea. And in particular, our guest this week the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, author, film producer, and potentially playwright, as you might hear uh, later on when we talk to him, but the one and the only Paul Fisher, who has wrote an excellent book. Have I said that right? Book. You did, book, book. Yeah. yeah. The only way to say it. On B-E-W-K, yeah. um, on uh, Kim Jong-il. I want to give and a nod uh, to yeah. Richie, Richie Doyle, Richie. Who, uh, who sent me a text and said, this would be a good lad to get on. And he wasn't he was wrong. A good aunt. He wasn't wrong. So no, thanks, no. Richie. And if anyone else wants to give us nominate yeah. or nominate or suggestions, nominate. Does anyone want to suggest any guests that you find would be interesting? Give us a shout because Richie done done us good there. Nice yeah. one, Richie. Absolutely, yeah. Fair play, Richie. And Graham is right. If there's anybody that you have come across, or anything you've come across, you think wouldn't be too bad on a little old WTS pod, and you'd like that to come through your ears through iTunes or through Stitcher or through whatever platform you use to listen to us. Let us know. Shout us up on Twitter at WTSPod or uh, Facebook.com forward slash WTSPod Ireland. Drop an L suggestion in and as we'll do our best to get them on. If they sound interesting, if they sound like good people, we're all about talking. Much like the dear leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is all about looking after the lads. We, we want to look after lads. you. We want to look after you. We ask anybody on. They say no, they say no. That's it. That's kind of the attitude we've approached it with. Mm. Um, it's kind of like Graham's attitude of dating. If they say no, they say <laughs> You haven't brought in the old date thing in a while. No, I haven't. That's I put it to bed for a while. Now I brought it back up again. I'm a catch, quite frankly. Are we? Are we getting on for states or what? They're looking for people for season two. I'd be scarlet, man. Be watered down, man. 
Oh, I'd love to just send you in on the WTS Pod t-shirt, WTS Pod hoodie. Yeah, just go on a w- branded session. W- WTS Pod headband, <laughs> everything. WTS Pod wheelchair. <laughs> Brand new sponsored WTS oh, wheelchair. Oh, I would absolutely love to do it. And it's just, great though, isn't it? Oh man, I love that show. If you haven't watched it, lads, it would still be on the RTE players, the Irish version of First Dates. It is, if you haven't seen First Dates, you need to. There's the English version of it, which is glorious. And that's the Irish version of it, which is proven to be a hit. Like. But, like, I, that, that part at the end of the date where they're in that room and it's like, so... The cringe factor. Uh, the cringe factor. Like, uh, watched it with my brother there last week and he didn't, he never heard of the show. Had he not? No, he was he was in with me just talking, in my room just talking and he's like, what's this? I said, first date's Ireland. He goes, what is it? They're going to first date and the dinner. And then they bring them into a room after the it's date. A, bl- a blind date, yeah. Blind date. They go into the room after the dinner and they say... Uh, would you go on a date again? And they say yes or no. <laughs> Carl was loving life when it's hilarious. when the girl said yeah and the lad said no. <laughs> Carl was loving life. Was like, there is a huge amount of friend zoning going on, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. There's actually like I watched the Channel Four one, the English one, mm. uh, the UK one, and uh, oh, I hate saying UK. You know, the Kingdom. It's not a Kingdom. Uh, the English one is it not? No, it's how, how wasn't it? Because that's their typical Kingdom. In what, in what aspect? I don't know, I just don't think it's a kingdom. I've been there, it's not a kingdom. But does it not have a monarch? And it should not be Great Britain, because it's not great. Well, that's you get the premise of, me, uh, of my statement. Well, the Great Britain thing, I'm willing to go so far as, because that's opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we we mightn't seem like a republic, but we're a republic. Spain isn't like the Spanish kingdom. I, I don't get what you're getting at, I'm sorry. Like, I don't, I don't understand what you're trying to point out, like... I'm just, it was just me saying it's not, I don't think it's a kingdom. All right, I think it is. It's not a fairy tale kingdom. I think it's a great kingdom. Yeah. Anyway, I think it should be called a great kingdom. Where was I going? United there? Britain. What? I think it should be called a great kingdom of United Britain. I love. I love. I love. GKUB. Yeah. Exactly. I love licking British stamps just because you pay lick Liz. Oh. What, what was I saying there? Don't know. I just love winning you up with the Brits. I know you do. Because you always <laughs> put me off as well. Uh, hello, hello to our listeners in the United Kingdom of Great Britain. I can't remember what I was Northern saying. Ireland. That's all right. Don't worry. You're talking about four states. Four states. Yeah. The the, <laughs> the 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 English one. The version that's on Channel Four. Yeah. There seems to be more success on that. Yeah. Like when you see at the end of the show, it's like Danny and Graham went on a second day. Yes, we did. Danny and Graham went up to London Eye. Yes, we did. Danny and Graham went to Paris. Yeah, we did. Danny got down on his bad knee. Yeah, and he fell Danny over. And, yeah, Danny and Graham are now engaged. There's none of that on yeah. the Irish one. It's like, the girl's like, oh my God, I think I actually fancy him. Yeah. And you always think that the lad is the underdog, but then the lad turns around and says, nah, I wasn't into it. Yeah, it's like, no. mate, she's an absolute riot. I'd definitely go for a drink with you again, but just as friends, like, because you're great banter, but just as friends, which is a nice way of saying, had some crack, but you've a head in you like a bag of farts. So I'm going nowhere with you. Bag of farts. <laughs> no, Korea. No, no, we've got housekeeping to do, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, the North, yeah, it's a North Korea special, so there is going to be house, North Korea housekeeping. Well, for states, North Korea, but like... Um, that would t- be amazing. With, with the people that are only allowed 28 different haircuts. That would be absolutely amazing. I would absolutely love a North Korea version of four states. I just, um, I was going to say something about four states, and now you've thrown me. Never mind. Anyway. Now you know what it feels like to be thrown. 
Uh, yeah, basically, yeah, we do. Fair enough. But uh, I just think it's a great show, and it I think I think you should go on it, and it'd be great crack. I did look at the application process. And I, I have half a fill in for you. <laughs> you dope. <laughs> <laughs> they got to a section where you have to upload photos and videos, and I was like, ah, oh, shit, I can't do that without them knowing. <laughs> I was just when you said I'd apply for it, I went uh, I went on the website and there was about twenty eight bleeding questions. Yeah, there was loads. So I was like, nah, not the only. There's this. a question uh, which is describe your what would be your your dream date. <laughs> what did you say? And I said my dream date would be with UFC champion Misha Tate, and it would be on the scenic surroundings of Cliney Hill with a private concert from Christy Moore. <laughs> <laughs> Deadly. <laughs> you know me too well, man. Tell you, man, because I know that would be your dream date. Oh, Misha. Misha Tate, a spice bag, Cliney Hill and Christy Moore. Oh, Misha and Christy. Hell you now. Did you see Misha Tate talking about uh, no. Ronda Rousey going on a mad one at Page Van Zandt on the Joe Rogan podcast? No, I, I missed it. I, I seen it, I didn't listen yeah. to it though. Apparently Ronda's just a weapon. Really? To, yeah, she went mad at Page for congratulating uh, Holly Holm. Oh, Holly Holm? On beating Ronda. So, when did Page it on Twitter? Uh-huh. Did Paige do that on Twitter? or I, I don't know, but if they were at a, a photo shoot thing together. I can't remember what the photo shoot was for or something. And I think it was Reebok, actually. And Paige apparently was like, oh, is Rhonda here? I just, I'd love to get a photo of Rhonda. Like. And they were like, don't ask Rhonda for a photo. And uh, she was like, what? They were like, yeah, just leave Rhonda alone. But apparently Rhonda then turned up and just straight up to Paige and was like, fuck you, you. And, and just started lashing around. Attitude. Saying, like, like, you you, you tanked hot. Are you uh, congratulated Holly Holm on beating me? So, you and that's disappointing this. to hear, isn't it? It is, yeah. But like, there's there's a couple of stuff. Like, I I still love Ronda, like, mm. but there's a couple of stories of her being like just this bad, bad bitch, like. And I think I don't know if you ha- if you're gonna be as much of an ass kicker and do what she does and all that. I suppose maybe you have to have a little bit of that in you. But then you look at someone like Misha Tate, who's just so level and just sort of yeah, what else? Misha's the dream woman. Brian Carraway's a dope. He's a lucky, lucky man, but. Um, yeah, it's not often that we'd plug other podcasts that aren't Irish, but look, the Joe Rogan one, Misha Tate, let's check it out, mm. definitely. Anyway, North Korea. I'm infatuated by North Korea. I have been for a long time too, and it is a place that is just so mental. So isolated, isn't it, from the world? Uh, Self-exiled, self self-isolated. Self Are they a member of the United Nations? Oh, jeez, I don't know. I'd imagine they are, but like... They don't show up. Probably. They abstain. They abstain, yeah. I don't actually know if they are, if they're part of the UN or not, but I know um, when the Korean War kicked off in the 50s, the UN and the Yanks were the ones that helped the South Koreans, and the Chinese were the lads that helped the North Koreans. I don't know hmm. if that answers your question, that was just a tidbit I thought I'd throw in. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a good tidbit. Because the UN are involved, so, do you know what I mean? Would you go to North Korea? I'd love to. You know, I, I would, like, because the fascination, and the, I suppose it's... And and Paul Fisher, our guest this week, we talked about that because he's been to North Korea. Um, he pointed it out, and it's a very fair point of this kind of like, you might have this curiosity about it, but you know you're feeding the regime by going. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing of, I'd love to go to Auschwitz and see the concentration camps because I'm a history nerd. But at yeah. the same time, there's something weird about me saying the sentence, I'd love to go to Auschwitz because it's a horrific place. And what happened there is absolutely disgusting and vile. But... The history narrative me is like, mm, I get you. You know, did you see the um, the, the uh, what are those things called, Danny? The if you can describe it, I'll tell you. The, the kind of plane yokes, the drones. Drones. Did you see the drone footage of uh, Auschwitz? I did. 
I did. That's eerie, isn't it? There's, I have to admit, there's some amazing drone footage of places. Have you ever seen, the, actually, Chernobyl, the 30th anniversary of Chernobyl wasn't so long ago, and there's an amazing drone footage wow. of Chernobyl and the area around Chernobyl, and it's just insane. Chernobyl's a bizarre, creepy. Yeah, it is. Um, North Korea, though, like, the images I've seen of it are quite Soviet and quite grey and... Yeah. Quite quite cartoony as well in that everything's kind of repeated down the street and all that. Yeah, it's just kind of propaganda type thing, I suppose. And, uh, like, look, after... So what happened with... The the peninsula of Korea was occupied by Japan during World War II. When World War II ended, Japan's occupation ended, and you had the split between North and South. Then you had the Cold War. And while... It, like the Cold War never really had any kind of major battles. Some seen the Korean War as this kind of proxy battle because North Korea was kind of helped by the communists in China and the communists of the Soviet Union, where the South Korea was helped by the US and the UN. Yeah. So it was this kind of proxy war situation with the Cold War and that then eventually ended and you have this big demilitarized zone along the border of South and North Korea and yeah, so there'd be a lot of this kind of just given it because communism and Leninist and, and Marxist sort of theories are heavily, heavily influential in North Korea. So you have this big kind of influence from Soviet Union times plus an element of Chinese culture brought into North Korea. And then they add that to their cult of personality towards their leader, like yeah. Kim Jong il, Kim Jong un now. Kim Jong un. Was Kim Jong Un originally, yeah, and then the Democratic Democratic Workers Party, which is kind of the only political party in the country, and all that combines to create this batshit crazy, mad, isolated, nutcase country that is North Korea. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, like. man. It's um, what got me interested like years ago was there was a great story about. Um, pro wrestlers in North America like yeah. WCW um, Ric Flair and and all them Sting and all that actually I don't know if Sting was a part of it but there was a, a group of WCW wrestlers together with Japanese wrestlers and Muhammad Ali went to North Korea to do a show yeah. in a 100,000 seater stadium Jesus and the stories they told were like you can check it out I think it's on um, it could be a Sports Illustrated uh article um well whoever wants to read it text me and i'll shout I'll, out I'll, to I'll, the I'll, former guest john wertime yeah of sports illustrated time um and one of the wrestlers was saying that he was in there they have guides all the time going from a to b except for in the bedroom so the go but the guides are outside the bedroom yeah but they'd be on the phone to their wives in america and they'd be saying like oh yeah we did this we did that but if there's any kind of negativity towards North Korea they're on the phone to the wife one minute and then all they hear the next one is beep 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 yeah. beep so someone's actually listening to the phone call conversation yeah, yeah. and if you're bad mouth in North Korea they just hang up yeah then I suppose what's after getting me into it recently was the whole Paddy Power connection with Dennis Rodman going to Paddy, Paddy Power Paddy Power sponsored the, the, where initially were sponsoring the Dennis Rodman trip. Were they? Yeah, I didn't know that. They pulled out because of the the out the national the international outcry of it. Yeah. So they sponsored the first trip, Dennis Rodman going over to right. North Korea. The first trip that he went over, 
entailed him picking the North Korea team selection that we're going to face the former NBA stars. So Paddy Power picked that or paid for that. Um, Then world attention, world media attention were kind of saying, this is ridiculous. What are you doing that for? There's so much pressure put on Paddy Power. So they pulled out of the trip, but the second trip was where the game was going to take place. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Paddy Power were forced to pull out. They said, look, we can't be involved in this. And I believe it was partially their idea as well. Um, ah, like, yeah, it's yeah. Mental. It's a, like Paddy Power quite risque um, with their advertising, their marketing, mm-hmm. as we know. So it was crazy to see them actually get involved in North Korea in the first place, but at the same time, they are quite risky. And it, yeah, they, 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 I'd say they just wanted to see a big Paddy Power uh, banner in the middle of Punyang. Yeah, they have a very shrewd marketing team. Yeah. Um, they come up with some very, very clever marketing campaigns. Like, remember the woman Ireland were playing Scotland? In the Euro qualifiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roy Keane. Roy Keane then. I think Roy Keane then pressed. He sued, yeah. yeah he sued, he settled, yeah. I think. Um, very clever. But anyway, look. But yeah, Bang Bang and Punyang. You need to check it. that right. out. Yeah, we need to watch that. Um, so yeah, look. We're going to talk to somebody who knows a lot more about North Korea than you or I do. Yes. And I'm looking forward to it. Um, he is the author of the book, Kim Jong-il Production. Which you can get in Eason's and... Hodges and Figgis and Dubray Books. All good bookshops. Where else? And some rubbish ones too. Or you can get it online from Amazon and have the book come to you rather than you going to find it. You know what I mean? Not worse than rocking up to a shop saying, I'm going to get that. And you go into the shop and it's out of stock. You know what I mean? And Eason's. I got it in Eason's. There you go. Yeah. So, um, so look, check it out. But in the history section. In the meantime, let's hear from this week's guest, the one and the only great book, Mr. Paul Fisher. So, joining us now is Paul Fisher, author of A Kim Jong-il Production, The Extraordinary True Story of a Kidnapped Filmmaker, His Star, Actress, and a Young Dictator's Rise to Power. Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, <laughs> what what got you involved with writing this book, Paul, or what, what got you first interested in North Korea? Well, I'm, I came from it to, from the film point of view. I'm a film producer, um, kind of by trade in the first place. And and I was kind of aware of the story in really vague terms because it kind of goes around film circles. So I kind of knew about this story that Kim Jong-il once, as I thought about it then, kidnapped his favorite film director. Um, and that's kind of all I knew about it. So I always kind of assumed that's a really cool idea. If it had been a bigger deal than him just, him just like kidnapping him for a couple of days, I would know more about it. So I sort of assumed, all right, he must have nabbed this guy and then had to give him back immediately or something. So I had this idea in my head of this could be a cool story for like a play or something. You know, dictator, director, they both kind of have God complexes. They debate one of them working for the other, try to take advantage of one another. That, that could be kind of cool. And then I filed it away um, for that day when you finally tackled those 8 million ideas you're never going to tackle. <laughs> um, and then one day I was just in the pub with my girlfriend um, and we were talking about everything and nothing for some reason, I brought that up. She asked me what happened. I said I didn't know. So we started Googling it, and I was immediately obsessed just because of all the detail and, like, the background and who the guy actually was. Um, and it was doing that thing of, like, you know, when you Google something and, and everything you find kind of leads you to, like, eight different tabs. So your windows are just growing and growing, and I was just obsessed. It happens um, to the best of us, doesn't it? 
Exactly, yeah. And it's kind of like I stopped everything. I had like film projects going and I was like, okay, I'm doing this now. Um, and I was kind of convinced immediately it would be a book because even just the Googling, I was like, there's too much here to condense into two hours. But at the same time, there's too little like firsthand material for it to be in my mind a documentary without like heavy voiceover or talking heads or whatever. And if it's a fiction film, it's so weird you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> where, um, where, how did you find the actual like? Because over the last year or so, I've kind of done the same, like just Google North Korea and find it just fascinating that it's it's such isolate such isolation from the rest of the world. Um, but I've never come across uh, this story. Say, so how did you come? How did you find out about this story? There's there's two things that come to my memory and I can't remember which one is first is I remember one like guardian article years ago about, I think it was one of those about when Hennessy cognac released their numbers of sales and <laughs> it became public that Kim Jong-il bought like a million quids worth or something. <laughs> and I think the bottom paragraph was one of those. And this was when Kim Jong-il was still alive. So a few years ago, and I think the bottom paragraph was, you know, Kim Jong-il is known for his eccentricities. He once did this, did that, and even kidnapped his favorite film director. And I remember that really vividly. I can picture the page because I remember reading it then. Maybe it was The Observer because it might have been a Sunday morning breakfast or something. And I was like, that's crazy and awesome. <laughs> but then I also remember like being told about it at a film festival. And I don't know which one came first. Um, and that was one of the weird things about it, actually. It's kind of, you know... As I spoke to people, weird numbers of people sort of heard about it. And then so many people, even North Korea watchers or experts, were like sort of very, very unfamiliar with it. Um, and I wonder what that is. You know, it's, it's, it took me a while to kind of get to the details because a lot of time people mention the story in the past. They never really used Chin Sang-ok, who's the filmmaker's name, or his ex-wife's name. They were just kind of, you know, the director and the actress that Kim Jong-il kidnapped. Um but once you kind of crack their names, you can find more stuff, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And that, I suppose one of the things that we found was it's, it is kind of when you find their names and you Google them and then you start with their Wikipedia page and it goes from there that uh, you're able to find out more and more about this. Exactly. And that's also when it kind of starts making sense as well because there's you know, one degree of story, which is Kim Jong-il, crazy film buff, kidnaps some hack film director, which is kind of what I saw happen. But then when you get the reality that he kind of kidnapped this guy who was a huge deal and this actress who was a huge deal and these people who basically created South Korea's film industry and so already kind of had experience in what he wanted to do, that you then kind of start understanding the scope of it. At least for me, that's where it kind of began with them and with this kind of interesting angle that... They were amazing and fascinating, but people automatically make the story about Kim Jong-il. So they were, the two of them were kind of victims of this crazy larger-than-life crime, if you come down to it, but yeah. then kind of became anonymous in the retelling of it. And they, they, they were a husband and wife at one stage, and it kind of, am I right in saying that in, in your book, Paul, you can sense kind of a feeling that you almost grew to, to have kind of a very, very fond feeling for 
both Chin and I hope I'm saying her name right. Choi is that how you pronounce it? Even I don't, I don't know, but it's Che actually. But I pronounced it Choi for like the first year and a half yeah. <laughs> until I got this soul and somebody laughed me out of a building. Um, and yeah, that's, I'm hugely affectionate towards both of them. Um, and that was a, a a big thing in kind of keeping my attention for the couple of years that it took to writing the book because I had three characters quote unquote that I felt really fond of because in a way even Kim Jong-il like kind of anyone you write whether it's fiction or non-fiction you try and get into a certain understanding of them and so you can't help but kind of become fond of that character and kind of possessive of that character even if it's a real person even if it's a real psychopath you know as they exist in that book you you kind of become fond of but for me Shin and Che I was kind of amazed by her as a person and I fell in love with kind of all her contradictions and the feminist aspect of her and her courage and just you know she is a strong hard ass woman yeah and I kind of fell in love with that and then Shin you know I would have loved to have met him obviously he died before I started writing the book but he just I don't know if this this was magnified by me not being able to meet him but he just had that kind of old school hustlery shystery film producer thing <laughs> that was just so cool to write and all the anecdotes you come up with when you research of you know people kidnapping his staff and him like putting his credits on other people's films and like just really properly con artisty stuff it's impossible not to love the guy <laughs> that's you know what i mean because it's like you know he's not an accountant he's not a bean counter he's one of those like old school hollywood types even though he's korean he has an so element of an element of being a bit of a badass, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. And in a, a, of being a badass in that sense, of being like really daring and risk taking. And in something I found, I get kind of drawn by in 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 characters is he wasn't really necessarily a good person. And I found that kind of made me more affectionate towards him. This idea that you know, if Kim Jong Il had kidnapped two people who were saints then I would have felt that I'm just putting out another one of those North Korean sob story books. But this idea that he kidnapped two people who are really complicated and one guy who was unbelievably selfish, unbelievably controlling, kind of, you know, self-involved, and in the end sort of took advantage of being kidnapped, then that made it a much more interesting story. And I suppose with the kidnap itself, then, how, how did that actually happen? So it kind of happened in two stages. So what they did is, uh, at this point in in kind of all the protagonists' lives, it's 1978, and Shin, who was a very famous film director in South Korea, was no longer able to make films in South Korea because he'd kind of gone um, afoul of censorship one too many times. So he had his <laughs> filmmaking license taken away from him. So he was kind of down and out. And Che, who was an actress who had been the most famous actress in North Korea, had divorced him after finding out he had a secret family. Um, and she was also kind of aging and not getting the kind of parts that she wanted. Um, and this was sort of well known and they were both kind of hunting for work. And so what the North Koreans did in kind of really simple terms is they tried to get a bunch of South Korean actors and actresses to come to China for like film festivals or fake projects or fake film meetings. And Che was one of them. And she's the one who said yes. And so she traveled to Hong Kong 
to meet these bogus film producers. I had a bogus business meeting set up, and then on the drive out to the remote villa where that was meant to happen, her car stopped by a beach, and she was grabbed by these guys and put on a smaller Jesus. boat, which took her to a bigger boat, which then took her to North Korea. What the and then hell? a few months later, when Shin came along to look for her, they kind of set up essentially the same thing with him. Bag on the head, small boat, big boat, take him <laughs> to North Korea. Which sounds crazy, but then you kind of realize really quickly that North Korea did that a lot um, in the 70s and the 80s, especially, and often to like random people. If they found random Japanese or Korean or Chinese people walking on beaches, they would snag them. And it always followed that kind of modus operandi. You know, guys Jesus. in wigs grab you, put you on a small boat that takes you to a bigger freighter that's waiting further out at sea. And then they take you to North Korea, and, and you never get seen over, it. How would they get over the checkpoints, Paul, without anyone question, make, questioning? Oh, my feeling is they the boats kind of ran, the, the big freighter ships ran under bogus flags with bogus freight, whatever, and it's just one, one extra person. Um, China and Hong Kong, all of that, they used to sort of look after them, all the, the kind of dodgy North Korea bank accounts in Macau and that sort of thing. And I, I think as well, it, it was kind of a boogeyman story for a long time, you know, where people didn't actually believe it was real. You know, someone would disappear off a beach and you'd either, you know, or they'd say it was the North Koreans or you, you'd hear it might be the North Koreans. But that was sort of, you know, people would go, ah, that's an excuse. He probably just like stumbled into the sea drunk and drowned or do you know what I mean? So I don't think people took it especially seriously until some of the people who had disappeared started popping up in north korea in random places it's, um, it's insane like it's and it was kind of under, it's on it's crazy and i mean the scope of you know there's that one chapter in the book you know this idea that there's like you know french women who are basically honey potted if that's the right conjugation yeah. into going to, to north korea that there were like lebanese and iranian women who you know applied to be secretaries and, and they just put them on a plane that's meant to go to Beijing or wherever, and it doesn't go to Beijing. And they just land in Pyongyang, and that's it. Or, you know, guys who come to do translations, and they get there, and you don't let them leave. Like, just the scope of it, and the amount of times they did it without anybody kind of saying anything about it, which is still the case today. You know, the Japanese government is sort of gently, gently trying to get investigations open into their citizens who were kidnapped. Yeah. Um, but in the order of you know, of priority from nuclear holocaust all the way down to we have a bunch of people who were kidnapped 30 years ago, you know, it kind of gets shoved to the side of the table. Oh, um, and there's a guy, there's an NYU professor and journalist called Robert Boynton, who was really helpful in the early days of me researching the book. And he's written a book that's all about essentially how these kidnappings could go on for so long and no one do anything about them. Um, and this North Korean attitude that, you know, North Koreans treat it like you're being invited. That's what they call them, invitations. Um, and it's just bonkers. It, it is, yeah. It absolutely sounds it. And I suppose at the heart of all this, then, Kim Jong-il, who, you know, the dear leader, as he came to be, um, is, I don't know, is mastermind the right word? Is he, he was the guy who planned this kidnapping from the outset. Is that true? It, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to kind of know for sure unless, you know, he kept papers and borders following him and get them. But it's, it, everything seems to indicate that, yes, and he was a massive micromanager. 
so that would make sense and be consistent with everything else he did. And there are North Koreans, kind of high-ranking North Koreans, who eventually defected um, and who have no you know, benefit, who can get no benefit from lying about this particular story. And they kind of all consistently say that, you know, in the Shin and Che case, specifically it was a kidnapping and Kim Jong-il was the one who wanted it. But also... That in more general terms, the whole kidnapping program had been Kim Jong-il's idea. And and the story Yeah, it was a program. And the story that's that's repeated, it may or may not be true, is essentially that Kim Jong-il's father, Kim Il-sung, um, when he ran the country, one day visited a, a, a spy school, for lack of a better word. Um, and he was disappointed that all the people teaching his secret agents how to be undercover abroad were North Korean. And he said, you know, wouldn't it make more sense for us to have, you know, for instance, Japanese teaching us how to behave like Japanese people or South Korean, how to be disguised like South Korean people. Um, and that Kim Jong-il, who was kind of in charge of all the COVID ops at the time, figured, cool, easy enough. We'll just go grab some Japanese people. Um, it's and crazy. then it grew from there. Yeah, that it from there to then basically anything they needed at any time. There was a point where they needed, you know, fake identities for hijackers to, to hijack this Korea airplane. So they, all right, let's find some Japanese people, take their passports. Um, they kind of just decided in a very medieval way that they could just use abduction as a sort of tool casually. Um, and they did it for a long time until they, they either couldn't afford it or thought it wasn't worth the effort anymore. You, you were saying there about the, the higher ranked guys. Um, how did they how did they escape? How did they get get out of North Korea without being questioned? Well, there's a couple of ways. Usually the, the thing most people do and have done is you kind of make it to the to the Chinese border if you can. And then you go across the river, either by yourself or with a broker. And then from there, you try and find an embassy um, and, you know, apply for protection. So, for instance, there's one extremely high-ranking defector called Huang Zhanyup, if I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, and so he went to Beijing and he was under kind of military protection in Beijing for years and years because there was a price on his head. So that's the more common way of doing it there's also guys who um you know they go abroad on like a diplomatic or business trip and they just never come back um and in both cases obviously you leave your family behind to to suffer in your place so it's a decision most people don't take lightly um but there's a lot of army guys high-ranking guys diplomats they just get to the point where they're kind of flying too close to the sun or they're just next in line if there's a purge or if one of the Kims has a tantrum and they just figure it's better, better to run for it rather than, you know, be the guy who gets shot in the square next week. And then with, uh, Chin and Che, they tried to escape themselves a couple of times. Unsuccessfully. Uh, Shin did. Yeah. So they were kept separate, um, for the first five years and neither of them really knew what happened to the other one. If the other one was still alive, um, for the first five years and Che, was kind of the more realistic of the two. So, you know, she tried to plead for her freedom and she tried to behave and be polite and and explain, sort of explain to Kim Jong-il why kidnapping wasn't a great thing to do to someone with kids. Um, whereas Shin a couple times 
just properly tried to escape. You know, he stole a car once, tried to drive to China, almost made it. Um, and then the second time was kind of a kind of harebrained, terrible plan. But he thought he'd basically pretend to have escaped, hide in the villa they were keeping him in. And then once they had gone looking for him, he would escape for real and go in the opposite direction. <laughs> and somehow, and that, you know, that failed within five minutes. Um, so he ended up being put in like a proper prison camp, you know, until then they'd been kept in relative luxury and Kim Jong-il's guys seemed to essentially believe that if they were treated well, given all the material stuff that they needed, they could be convinced to cooperate. Um, but for Shin, it took him being put in a proper, you know, labor concentration camp type deal for a couple of years to realize, okay, I've got to play along for a while if I'm going to have any chance of of getting out of this. And when you were, were, were researching this, Paul, and when you were putting kind of the strands together to make your book, mm. kind of, was there times where you had to kind of almost go back and double check some of this? Because, like, it is an absolutely off the wall story. And even that element of it, uh, you know, hiding in the house and one's kind of, yeah. it's, it's almost a slapstick comedy kind of thing. Like, it is, yeah. And I mean, the, you know, in, in answer to the times where I had to double check everything, it's every word of every sentence of every line of every chapter. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a big like true detective kind of wall up with just like string and stuff connecting and stuff and dates because I was sort of, you know, there's obviously there are a lot of people in South Korea, especially who don't believe this ever happened. And kind of as I mentioned in the book that, you know, there's people in South Korea who believe that Shin and Che couldn't get any work in South Korea. They went to North Korea um, it didn't work out, so they made up this story to leave. Which is that even I even think, today? Like uh, even today, yeah. When I was researching wow. and I went to Seoul, you know, you, either I spoke to people who hadn't heard of it because in South Korea it's very kind of future looking and they forget the past very quickly to generalize a bit. Um, but otherwise, people just go, "Oh yeah, but wasn't that fake?" You know, and there's a lot of North Korea experts, and that was the first six months of my research was calling every expert I could speak to, especially the ones who don't believe the story is real, and just go, okay, but what about this? And how about this? And how about this? Because I figured if I'm going to spend two years writing this, I better make sure it's real before I do. Um, and I think the, the evidence is overwhelming that it happened as a kidnapping, and the evidence against it even possibly happening any other way is also overwhelming. But... That's kind of where it started to where, you know, Shin and Che have their account of the story, which I kind of mapped out as a base. And then I read and watched and found everything I could about North Korea at that time in any way, you know, because mm -hmm. there could be a detail in anything that kind of backs up what this location is or where this person was at a time or where Kim Jong-il was at a certain time. Um, you know, and I used Google Earth images to try and figure out the places they were talking about. And wow. you know, when I went to Pyongyang, I bought like maps if I could, so so I could try and like play stuff. I was just gonna say uh, there, Paul, did did you make you yeah. made it to North Korea? You did? I did, yeah, and it's not that hard. You know, it's kind of so I, I, I went before it was announced that I was writing the book because the book got sold while I was writing it. And so at that stage I was just some guy. So I kind of went as a tourist and I told him I was a filmmaker and I was like, I'd love to see all the kind of film related sites. Um, and doing that's not so hard. Um, it's kind of an ethical question because you know, the money you're giving them 
is going straight to the regime. Okay. Um, What's the visa from, process and stuff like? There's a couple of accredited tour operators, and I think they're all, the two or three of them are based in Beijing. And basically, it's a package deal. You give them the money, they set you up for the time that you need, with a schedule that they agree with the North Koreans, they get you the visa, and then, you know, your meals, your everything. So obviously, there's nothing you can do by yourself when you're there. And then you go to, I think some people maybe go to Moscow, but mostly go to Beijing. Um, you meet your guys, they give you the visa, um, the schedule, they tell you kind of the ground rules of how to behave. And then the next day you get on a rickety old um, kind of Soviet airplane and you're off. Um, were, were, you, were you frightened or were you worried at all the first time you were going to North Korea, Paul? No, I wasn't because I figured, at least at the time, and this was sort of pre-Kim Jong-un being as unpredictable as he is, at least at the time there was sort of a feeling that if you didn't break the rules very obviously, then you wouldn't be in trouble. And if you weren't American, then you were unlikely to get into trouble. Um, and I have a Swiss passport. Um, the North mm. Koreans tend to think of the Swiss and the Swedish and the Norwegians as kind of neutrally friendly countries. So the countries have diplomatic relations with them on behalf of everybody else. So I have no bargaining value. But they, did, um, they had no knowledge of you writing the book? No, none whatsoever. And the interesting thing is because I told them I was a filmmaker, the two guides I got, because you get these two guides to be with you anytime you're not in your hotel room, um, and you get two so they can watch you and watch each other. Um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> That's the two of them, crazy. It's crazy. And so actually, so... Um, what was your so expectations of it go, like going over? Well, I had none really. And that's the weird thing is, is I thought it would be more scary than it was. I thought it'd be more stressful than it was. And in the end, it was just unbelievably eerie. It was like, like it was kind of like being shown around a prison by the inmates and the inmates are trying to convince you that the prison's awesome. <laughs> but you know that there's torture and stuff and they know that you know, but no one's mentioning it and they ask you to buy flowers and gifts every 10 minutes. And... You know, or like I worked, I had a summer job at Walt Disney World once. And that feeling like an hour before it opens, you know, and Mickey and Minnie don't have their heads on yet. And everybody's kind of <laughs> sort in uniform and everyone's hung over. But the cheerful music's already piping through and the place is empty. So everything looks really fake. It felt really like that where everyone's pallid, but about to go on a shift where they pretend. <laughs> you know what I mean? That like fairy tales are real, but we all know it's. BS. Like, is there? Oh, I was. This might seem like a silly question, but like, is there like souvenir shops, or can you buy stuff to say constantly? Like, so you can buy all this stuff. Say, so I was it like you know, like the I Heart New York T-shirts, like <laughs> I Heart Pyongyang, and like it's sort so, of yeah, it's, it's so bizarre. It's mostly like books and sticker books and posters and calendars and 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 so there's two things about that that are fascinating. One is like on the book tour. I kind of realized there's a community out there of like North Korea collectors, you know, and they have, they've gone to North Korea two or three times and they have every edition of like the traffic girl calendar thing and all the pins or whatever. But <laughs> the other thing was, what the? Uh, so they call the gift shops foreigners bookshops and you can go in and they basically have like maps and books and DVDs or whatever. And all the books about Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung in like Spanish, German, English, everything. 
And for me, that was really cool because those books have pictures. So I found some really cool pictures of Kim Jong-il young that I didn't have otherwise. Yeah. Um, but also, they kind of have these blinders. So I was able to buy different editions of Kim Jong-il's biography. And you can kind of see year to year how they change it and fake it. Uh-huh. And it becomes even more bullshit. <laughs> but there's sort of, for some reason, no one in the store goes... You know, the 1982 one kind of contradicts the 1989 edition. <laughs> you can just buy them all. Kind of the short ones, the big ones, the children's illustrated ones, the documentary, and then just compare and contrast. And you can kind of make a timeline of how they made up Kim Jong-il, as it were. Right. And, so I didn't uh, expect that, but that was really cool. The, and from your your research and from reading the, the many biographies of Kim Jong-il, was there one of, because one of the things I love about him was this whole thing surrounding his birth. And right. he was born under a double rainbow and a new star in heaven appeared and all yeah, these yeah. kind of things. Was there, was there any of those that stood out to you at the time that you were like, you know what, that's my favorite one. That's, that's the one that I'm going to lead with if anybody ever asked for Kim Jolly. Well, there's, there's a great, it's more of a vibe than a specific anecdote, but there's, without any of the humor, they kind of all have this weird like Worcester and Jeeves vibe. Because right. basically... The biographies are all kind of like anecdotes of Kim Jong-il and his driver or Kim Jong-il and his butler going around the country. And Kim Jong-il is a divine genius. And his butler is kind of this more or driver is kind of this moron who admires him so much. And it's so earnest and kind of farcical that it's funny. Um, But there's one I can't remember the title, but it's kind of like something, something stories of the dear leader. And it's basically it's almost like a kid's illustrated Bible. There's no illustrations, but it's kind of the highlights. So it starts with the birth and then, you know, it gives you the kind of like, he worked so hard. He didn't need to poo anymore story. And, (laughs) you know, the kind of like never sleeping, it gives you kind of all the highlights in little easy, uh, chapters. Brilliant. And that's one of my favorite because they have, you know, like kind of four volume biography ones where they're, they have nothing to say. The guy's never done anything. They just bang on and on and on and on. And, and then, so I know we got a little bit sidetracked there away from kind of your own book with <laughs> that, that happens with North Korea. I was going to yeah. say, but with North Korea, it's impossible not to. Um, when you, so obviously, um, she ended up passed away by the time you were, you were doing this, but Shay was still alive. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And, and at the time, you know, she's kind of in her late, I think she turns 90 this October. Okay. And, um, and did, you, did you meet her and, and talk to her about the experience? I did. Yeah. Um, that was kind of a long process. It took me a few months to convince her that talking to me wasn't a bad idea. Well, um, and I think she's kind of, she's got this larger or used to have this larger paranoia that, me or anyone could be a North Korean agent faking it so I could kill her. Wow. Which sounds crazy, but I guess in her experience is entirely justified. Yeah. And then she got this kind of smaller paranoia, which is that she has spoken to a lot of people throughout the years who then turn around and write an article going, she was never kidnapped. It all sounds so crazy. So she's a bit protective of the story in that sense. Mm. Um, so it took a little while to get around both of those things. You know, I had to send her like copies of my passport um, and like films that I've made and all this information to prove that I was a real human being, not an alias. 
And I had to watch all of her films that I could find so I could prove to her that I took her seriously and kind of constantly call her um, through this friend of mine who was basically my interpreter and just mm. coax her. You know, and then I went to Seoul and I think she canceled on me twice at the very last minute. Um, and then finally we met in a public place where like we spent eight hours together that first meeting and the first couple of hours was her starting the whole interrogation process kind of again. Yeah. Um, you know, and kind of going, why should you write a book? Why can't I be the co-author of your book? Um, why do we need a book? Wow. You know, why you, why do you care? And weirdly, it's only when I told her I went to North Korea um, and I kind of made a joke about it, you know, not changing and that the film studios didn't look like they'd been used since she left. That she kind of had a chuckle and relaxed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's a toughie. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> so you actually um, got to the film studio as well, Paul? I did, yeah. It's sort of, that's also not so hard. Sometimes they miss it out on the tour, but it's one of the things they like to show you. Um, and for people like me who kind of specifically ask about it, they put on a little show where they kind of, you know, they introduced me to this random guy, told me he was like the head honcho producer. Um, and then they kind of set up like essentially fake film shoots to give you the impression that stuff's still happening. Um, you know, with like just nonsensical scenes and like lights in random positions and cameras that aren't rolling. Um, that's so I did, and I took a little tour, um, and, and and I guess the eerie thing is like they specifically have like four outdoor sets. Let's say so they've got a colonial Japanese street and like a '50s South Korea street, but these weird kind of comic book propaganda version of them. And because there's just like one street of each, then you watch North Korean films and you go, "Oh crap! I can realize that's the one street over and over and over again in every film." <laughs> early dressed up because that's all they have so there's no and budget <laughs> exactly no budget whatsoever and i have this really weird thing that's kind of cool in person because it almost looks like it's from some weird like escher painting but they'll have say they've got a house that's meant to represent uh like a european continental alpine village that's how they make continental europe look like one side of the house is that and the front of it, like the grass, the lawn, whatever is made to look like that. And then you go around the corner and that other facade of the house is like China. And you go around the corner and the next facade of the house is like, you know, hellish America. And so the houses are like weird Rubik's cubes of different sets pasted together. Um, where, Paul, where, where did all this mentality come from? I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I think it's a combination of kind of the Soviet way of doing propaganda, the the Japanese way of doing a kind of imperial propaganda. And then the kind of that went through Kim Il-sung's kind of religion aspirations. Since Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea, he'd grown up kind of with missionaries and around Christians and Catholics. And he was very aware of kind of the power of religion. And then that all got blended together. And then that got mixed through Kim Jong-il's kind of obsession with entertainment, basically. And I really think that's the mix. You get this weird sort of like Soviet-y cult of personality, Japanese leader as God, religious Hollywood thing. 
Um, but depriving just, the depriving the citizens as well, though, where like if it's all godlike, yeah. genius type things, where where does depriving the citizens come into it? Depriving them, yeah, yeah. I think that was the the way to pin it. I think is in the Korean War, which was 1950 to nineteen fifty three. The Chinese kind of started experimenting with brainwashing. Um, to use a term that doesn't really fit, but that's the shorthand. Um, and so they had prisoners of war in that war, and they'd keep them isolated, and they'd go through certain steps to try and change their mentality. Um, and because of the Korean War, the bulk of it on the nor- on the North Korean side was basically the Chinese fighting it for them. I think the North Koreans kind of picked up, oh, yeah, we could do this to the whole country. Just shut it down and then go through these very specific My steps. God. Of you know you you isolate people, you make them feel that there's something wrong that's been done to them, you make them feel that you're the only person who can help them overcome that wrong, and you make them feel that there's a real proper promised land around, around the corner if they do. Wow. And those are the steps that you know the Church of Scientology uses, yeah. A B C D, you know every cult uses, um, and it worked so well, and it was like in this weird specific period in history where they could get away with it because i really think it couldn't happen now because there's too much information and you know they're also able to like bankroll it because the soviet union and china basically paid for everything because that's the only way you can pay for stuff if you cut yourself off from the world you need kind of like a a sugar daddy um (laughs) and that wouldn't happen now either so just this weird like flash in the pan unique situation um and they kind of just built the Truman Show for 20 million people. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly the, yeah. the good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, well, I suppose as you're, you're a film producer, as you said, I, I presume you went back and you watched some of the films that would have been made during this kidnapping period. I, I know one of them was like a Godzilla-type film. Is that is that right? Yeah. and That's right, yeah. I watched, so I watched all of the eight films that Shin directed while he was kidnapped. Um, and you can find those on bootlegs online and are quite expensive and the quality is terrible, but it's good enough. Um, and the Godzilla one is the, the, called Pulgasari. That's the only one that's kind of widely available because it got distributed in um, in Japan and Eastern Europe and it became kind of a cult. Like I remember being at film school like years and years ago and we had these nights where we'd basically all get stoned and then watch something terrible. <laughs> um, you know, the kind of Santa Claus and the Martians thing, or you'd watch like Plan 9 from Outer Space. And we watched Pulgasari, which is the Godzilla film, one week. And that was kind of my introduction to that film. You know, yeah. it's one of those, it's so bad, it's good, that it's kind of got a cult status. So you can watch that in fairly good quality. So I watched all of those, and then I also watched all of Shin's South Korean pre-kidnapping films that I could find and a couple of post-kidnapping films because that's the weird thing you know it's it's so when Shin escaped he went to Hollywood spoiler alert um, <laughs> and he made um, he the, the the main thing he made is he made these films called Three Ninjas which were like Disney kind of karate kid rip-offs I think of it there's, there's three or four of them isn't yeah. there yeah there's three or four of them, and I think I they, heard of them. Yeah, yeah. They be, I, I remember being a kid and watching those on a loop as a child. <laughs> and it's basically these three kids in California, and they fight these, like I think, bad polluting 
corporate type baddies and they've got a funny old Asian uncle and it's Karate Kid, yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, fart joke mashup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they actually, in a weird way, then like launched John Turtletop's career, who's another guy who makes like National Treasure movies. Mm. Um, those are like his first movies. Um, so like I remember watching those as a kid and then also remember as a teenager one like my dad and I used to stay up late and we'd watch like Jean-Claude Van Damme movies or whatever was on the television at the time and I remember one night we stayed up late and there was this film about like an airplane hijacking or a crash and it had this really harrowing sequence where the plane like gets ripped in half and this woman near the explosion gets like burnt to like a proper like trauma level horrible crisp like so vivid I remember as a kid feeling like I could chew her skin like like chips like crisps this is so gross and i can never remember what the film was my whole life i've looked for it yeah and then the last film machine made after he escaped was a film called mayumi which was about the north koreans hijacking and bombing a korean air plane and that was the film no way so i just popped it in to watch it researching it and then this sequence just like haunted me for 25 years <laughs> that i couldn't find was suddenly on Wow, that that's um, amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. And Paul Gasari, obviously, I'd watched at film school, so I had weirdly I'd known this guy's work in a bizarrely traumatic, defining way before realizing <laughs> it was his. That's um, yeah, it's crazy. So I watched as much as I could, and I watched all the North Korean films that I could, which is like that's hard labor. Yeah, it's all exactly the same, and they're two hours long, and they're so melodramatic, and they're terrible. <laughs> um, but you kind of get the patterns out of them after a while. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of the same as with anything else because, you know, I wasn't a North Korea expert. So I was really keen that I would watch and read and absorb as much as I could. Um, so that hopefully when the book came out, I would have, as has been happening, people coming up going, you really got the culture, as opposed to people coming up going, who the hell are you? You got that all along. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's incredible that it that's a kind of a, a nice loop as well the way everything tied in like that um paul i suppose look we're, we're running out of time which is but, but before we let you go just a, a couple of last questions um sure. obviously the the book by the way is, it's brilliant and i know it's been getting a lot of positive reviews and that online and that kind of thing but have you got anything else planned or have you anything else coming up at all over the next couple of months or what's the next project you're going to work on uh there's a couple of things there's a couple of kind of book projects that are sort of like this one, I hope. Um, but I'm still in the stage where kind of like this one, I'm making sure these things I've heard are true, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so there are a couple of other um, film kind of crime stories, weird stuff that happens that I'm sort of doing the research now to figure out, okay, is this true? And then I've got a book or is it just kind of an urban legend? Um, and then I've got nothing. And they both seem to be true, so knock on wood. Um, and while I'm researching those, uh, when I was promoting the book, I found there's a community of North Koreans in England in New Malden, which is just outside London. Um, and it's the largest number of North Koreans in any one place outside of Korea. Wow. For a variety of reasons. How did you find them, Paul? Um, I, I, again, it's something I'd sort of heard about really vaguely, um, it, it had come up in the research and so when I was asked by Penguin in the UK they basically told me can you pitch stuff to newspapers and we'll use that as promotion 
the first thing I thought of was I'd love to go to New Malden and meet some of these guys. Um, and the independent was like, that's cool. Here's a photographer, go and check it out. Um, and I really didn't know what I would kind of find. There's basically this whole thing that there, there's a South Korean community in New Malden because Samsung headquarters used to be there and the South Korean uh, kind of consulate used to be there years and years ago. So South Koreans kind of congregated there and then North Koreans come to the UK. They have a hard time integrating. They hear that there's a place where you can basically go and eat Korean food and be around Koreans. And so they go down there and it kind of grows. But while I was there, there's this thing that a, a big number of, North, of the North Koreans I spoke to, they basically escaped with brokers. So they pay someone to take them to China. And then those people who more often than not tend to work with uh, priests, with missions, Catholic churches, um, mm -hmm. they drop them off at the church and then the priests kind of go, where do you want to go? We'll put you on a plane. You land there, you apply for asylum, you can choose. Wow. And a lot of the North Koreans go, well, America is the enemy, South Korea is the enemy, but Britain, and then this whole really interesting thing comes in where, I don't know if it's still the case, but a generation ago, people in North Korea used to be taught at school that of all the democracies, which isn't that great, it's less than a socialist paradise, but of all the democracies, Britain is the best democracy in the world. <laughs> really? Yeah. And they basically spun this kind of adapted British history that basically says, the Industrial Revolution wasn't just like trains and factories and whatever. It was the workers taking over. So that's a workers' democracy. <laughs> it's not as enlightened as ours, but it's a workers' democracy. So these guys and these women come to England and they have this almost fetishistic idea of like it's a democracy, but it's going to be a workers' democracy and it's got factories and trains and coal mines. Um, and then obviously they get here and they find something that's you know, a better system than anything they've ever known, but also not what they were described. Um, so in a fairly random way, I'm, I'm trying to write a play in that community about that. Brilliant. Uh, that'd be cool, uh, But I've never written a play, so a week from now, I might have just given up and realized I can't do it. But <laughs> well, knock on wood, it won't that, that was your first book as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah so. But I sort, of, I sort of wanted to write the book for a very long time, um, and I kind of started a couple and went through this process, you know, where I, I'd start them and after a month or so I'd go, I'm not going to be able to focus on this for two years. But the, the, um, for your first book, it sounded like a very enjoyable process. It was brilliant. I mean, you know, I got really lucky with my agents because I got really good agents who got me in advance so I could actually get paid writing, which doesn't happen to anybody anymore. Um, and they got me, they gave me great advice so I could pick editors who aren't, you know, the thing that happens in the film business where producers or accountants is kind of happening in the book world where editors are business people. But they kind of my agents advised me to how I could pick a couple of editors that I love because they were really heavy red pen. You know, we're going to go through 8000 drafts kind of editors. And I wanted that to make sure the, the end product was good. Um, and it sounds really terrible when you're writing about something so tragic. But writing about North Korea is just fun. Yeah, because it's fascinating Cause any, and it's all hard to believe stuff, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And anytime you get bored of something, there's this great story about Steven Spielberg, I think on a set of Schindler's List, which is another tragic thing, but he'd get bored of this. He wouldn't know how to shoot this one scene. So he would just turn around and he'd have this other set all set up to do that one and come back to it. And writing the book was kind of the same, where if I felt really exhausted of trying to crack this scene about, say, the kidnapping, I could then go, eh, I'll just spend the next couple of days writing about Kim Jong-il kidnapping 14-year-olds to be a 
James Bond sex slaves. <laughs> and obviously that's really tragic, but to write it's so insane that it's really enjoyable. You know, and if that doesn't work, okay, I'll write about the kidnappings, I'll write about the prison system, or I'll write about his insane childhood. Um, you know, there's no moment where you're kind of staring at a page where the the the, the subject isn't giving you a lot. Yeah. Um I wanted to get your um, I wanted to get your opinion, Paul, on the, the kind of the Irish connection with North Korea. And this is that there's a documentary being that was released the last year or two, um, was narrated by a, an Irish broadcaster named Matt Cooper, and he narrated the story of Dennis Rodman's trip to North Korea. What What was your? I don't know if you got to see it. It was called Bang Bang in Pyongyang, but I. What was your opinion of uh, Dennis Rodman's trips to North Korea? I'm aware of the film, but I haven't seen it because once I finished writing the book, I kind of went, okay, I've been watching North Korean stuff for a couple of years now, so I'm going <laughs> to shut down. <laughs> you need a rest. But, yeah, exactly. The Dennis Rodman thing, I kind of really didn't pay that much attention to the details because it seems so absurd that I never researched it specifically. But it almost feels weirdly like a similar thing. Like Kim Jong-il was obsessed with film. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the current guy, is meant to be a massive basketball fan. Yeah. And instead of having to kidnap a guy, you can just suck up to him and give him some money. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a basketball nut. You know, I used to get up at four in the morning to watch basketball games. So Dennis Rodman, you know, was already this crazy, kind of amazing basketball player, this crazy guy who, like, like he was married to Madonna or he dated Madonna for a while yeah. or he married her and he turned up in the white dress. <laughs> and it's crazy like that, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, when, when the North Korean thing happens, you just go, well, he's mental, isn't he? It's not significant <laughs> in any way. You know, it's just some crazy dude taking advantage of some crazy situation for a bit of attention and money. Um, but I think it says something about North Korea and how, you know, even a crazy dude, they're aware of how much propaganda mileage they can get out of that. Yeah. And they're aware of how, you know, cool. Now people are going to talk about Dennis Rodman for three months and we're just going to slaughter thousands more of our people while you talk about that guy with the weird hair. That works for us. When I really think they're really aware of that power when, yeah. um, of distraction. Sorry for interrupting there, but I was going to say, when, when, you're, when you're ready to immerse yourself back into North Korea and um, watch, I would check out the documentary. It, 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 it's, it's like you said, you know, <clears throat> the father was obsessed with film, so he did what he had to do to bring film industry in. And then he was obsessed with basketball, but his father was also had a, there's another story from the mid nineties where his father, um, Kim Jong Il brought in pro wrestling stars. Um, and Muhammad Ali went to North Korea, like pro wrestling, North American pro wrestling stars like Ric Flair and, um, Muhammad Ali went and did a show in a hundred thousand seater stadium in, in Pyongyang. That's crazy. It's like, you know, they had, it, it, it's this whole spectrum of like the wrestlers, the filmmakers, the sports guys, whatever they had, like, they gave the Black Panthers, I think, like a like a tour visit in like the eighties, because someone told them the Black Panthers were basically commies, and they went, "Okay, we're not going to double check this. Just fly them over." <laughs> um, and you know, like all of that, and then really weird stuff. You know, there's that story about there was this German guy who was in the tabloids for a while in the nineties because he was able to grow giant bunnies. And Kim Jong-il heard about it and decided, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. going to solve the famine. Yeah. <laughs> so they just flew him over. <laughs> what the And hell? I sort of love this thing that kind of like, I've got a two-year-old. And I think if yeah. I put her in charge of a country, she would act pretty much the same way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she'd point at the TV and go, 
that guy, Elmo, I like him, get him here, whatever it takes. <laughs> That's basically what they do, you know, any hobby. They just, I like, you know, or even, and it doesn't have to be people, you know, that story that's in the book that, you know, Kim Jong-il decided he was going to start smoking, but he wanted to smoke foreign cigarettes. So he just had his guys buy every brand of cigarette in the world and then smoked all of them until he could figure out which one he wanted to be his. <laughs> like, that's what my kid would do with candy. <laughs> you know, just be like, fill me a bag of one of each. Should, should there be, you know, for the guys that went over, like, do you think there's, there should be criticism towards them? I think that's really interesting in a sense, because I think it's kind of this really weird version of the debate over any kind of cultural boycott. Because I do think there's something with North Korea where if you go there, if you're Dennis Rodman or something, you, you seem to be endorsing the leader and the system. There's kind of no way around it. But, you know, Dennis Rodman is someone who goes there, participates in events, and then, you know, gives press conferences saying how great Kim Jong-un is. So, of course, there should be criticism of him. But, you know, if you're invited and paid to go do a tour and you perform what you do in front of regular people, then technically you're not doing anything wrong, even though you're giving kind of credence to the regime that invites you. It's kind of a bigger debate. Yeah. yeah, bigger version of the debate about visiting as a tourist or about, you know, there's all these, I don't know how Bang Bang in Pyongyang was made, but, you know, there's these fiction films, um, like there's one called Comrade Kim Goes Flying, that are essentially co-productions between mostly Britain and North Korea. And Comrade Kim Goes Flying is a film kind of set in North Korea. It's very cheerful. It's very cheery about, I think it's a woman, I've not seen it, a woman who wants to be, uh, uh, airline, uh, airplane fighter, pilot, whatever. And, you know, there's kind of a similar debate there where it's kind of, you know, if you're making a positive co-production with North Korea, you're giving a positive image of the country to the world, which is great for understanding and for dispelling stereotypes and that kind of thing. But you're also just promoting that benign, harmless image of, of a country where the regime in charge is kind of doing stuff on Holocaust levels of atrocities yeah um you know I, I, it's sort of any which way you engage with it that's not about trying to bring the regime down you're kind of in iffy waters yeah I, I suppose there is that whole undertone ultimately that despite the fact that a lot of this stuff is batshit crazy and hilarious uh, at the end of the day it, there are people's lives that have been lost and people's entire families ruined off the back of some of these actions so I guess yeah. that adds a certain sinister tone to it at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you add up, you know, a famine that killed literally millions of people yeah. and, you know, them having prison camps, you know, one of them's bigger than Los Angeles. Oh my like God. Like a labor concentration that's, that's camp. Incredible. Never knew that. It's crazy. You know, the scale of it, you can't kind of wrap your head around. And I think the tricky thing is the only way to understand how the atrocities can happen is to kind of allow in the comedy in a sense because if you don't mm. allow yourself to see the absurdity as absurd then it's just not going to make sense to you and i think i've said this before this kind of idea that people either write about north korea in these very serious human rights depressing heartbreaking kind of terms or in the very silly dennis Rodman kind of terms and the stuff i've read you know the books i've read or the things i've watched it makes sense to me are the things where you kind of go from one to the other 
because that's where reality is to North Koreans, you know, and they're aware of the absurdity and they're aware of the tragedy and they're, you know, you can't really separate the comedy and the tragedy of it because mm. then neither of them makes sense because, because each of them justifies the other. Absolutely. Well, the book is a Kim Jong-il production, the extraordinarily true story of a kidnapped filmmaker, his star actress and a young dictator's rise to power. Its author is Paul Fisher, who was our guest this week. Paul, listen, I've absolutely loved talking to you. Um, the North Korea side of things is just extremely fascinating. If you do write that play, we'll have to get you back on to talk about that as well. But um, Yeah, thank you. In the Definitely. meantime, man, thank you so much for your time. Uh, congratulations on the book. It's absolutely brilliant and all the best going forward. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. So there you have it. Paul Fisher. That was mad, great, wasn't it? Great man. North Korea is just mental. Mental. It's absolutely mental. And look, if the North Koreans are listening to us, lads, you're welcome on the podcast anytime you want. Yeah. Anytime. If if Big Kim is listening, he wants to come on. Sound. If you're just a lad from the military. No I loved bother. I loved when he Just was don't kidnap us. Yeah. I loved when he told us about the foreign books bookshops, was it? Yeah. They're, they're like the souvenir shops. The souvenir shops, yeah, that's insane. I'd love to go out and get a fridge magnet. Do you do that? I get fridge magnets when I go yeah, away. Yeah, I get sometimes yeah. I do, yeah. Or, or a key ring, but mainly a fridge magnet. I sometimes get key rings or bottle openers. Yeah, yeah. Or kind of ornaments from the area. Like I've got a yeah. Colosseum or Leon Terra uh, Pisa or. Yeah, of a little uh, Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower to have yeah, too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Paul was great, man. I'd love to see it. Nearly love to see it as a movie, but I don't know how they do it or how well they'd pull it off. I think that's what he was saying as well, that like to make it into a documentary and a movie, it's just it's so it's mental. Yeah. That it's yeah, like the book is a better better medium for it. Like Yeah. Um and look I, I totally enjoy talking to him and the book is great, check it out, lads. Great. Genuinely. Thanks, Richie again. <laughs> yeah, um and thanks to Paul Fisher, um who uh I'll have to edit here because we need his Twitter handle. I'm just going to get it as well. At 10 cents 77. And uh, thanks to Paul as well for for his time. And you can check him out on Twitter. At 10 cents 77. That's it. So at T-E-N or at 1-0? At T-E-N-C-E-N-T-S 77. There you go. Check him out. Follow him for all your North Korea indeed um, you can follow me at Dan Joe Murray you can follow him at American Mania you can follow us at WTS Pod you can check us out on iTunes on Stitcher on Podbean on Podcast Addict anywhere and everywhere there are podcasts just search WTS Pod and we're there facebook.com forward slash WTS Pod Ireland give us a follow give us a share give us a like rate, review, subscribe all that crack tell a friend or uh, you know tell us if uh, if you think we need to improve not really. I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> um, yeah, look, that's all the time we have for this week. I've enjoyed it. That's uh, chapter 46 in the books. In the Chap- books? Chapter four- 46, one of my favourite numbers. The great Valentino Rossi. Is it? Yeah. Hope he wins the championship this year. Valentino Rossi is an amazing sportsman. Amazing. One of the best bike drivers. Yeah, boy. But anyway, that's it. Graham. Yes. I've enjoyed this. I have. I really enjoyed it. But uh, until next week. Good luck. Good night. God bless.